If you go ahead and grab your Bibles this morning and turn with me once again to the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms this morning. Uh, Psalm 16 will be our text today as we conclude our sermon series entitled Delighting in the Word that we've sought to begin our journey this year in seeking fresh joy in Jesus through first of all our intake of God's Word. And so we've started this first month of January looking at uh, different Psalms this week. We're in Psalm 16 to conclude. Next week, we'll begin a 10-week sermon series uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12-14, through 14, where we'll learn that our joy in Jesus is nurtured through the grace gifts that God has given to His church. Uh, and so we'll look specifically at those gifts of grace uh, starting next week for 10 weeks, uh, looking at that passage. I'm excited about that, excited about seeing how our use of the gifts that God gives us can help us stir up joy in one another and turn our gaze to Jesus Christ. That's next week, though, in 1 Corinthians 12 14. This week we're here in Psalm 16, so please follow along as I begin reading in verse 1 this morning. The psalmist says, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, You are my Lord, I have no good. Apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel, in the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices, my flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is God's joy-restoring, reviving word, so let's thank him for it this morning. Father, we are so grateful that you have penned these words that we have just read this morning. That you've used your servant, David, to declare these words. And as... He declared these words, and as we read these, we are, we are reminded of what you are and who you are to us. And so this is giving us a voice, an expression for our longings, our desires, our hopes. So thank you for this this morning. We pray as we go through this study this morning that you would speak to our hearts, that you would stir our affections as we seek our joy in you. God, again, as we've said already this morning, there are things that sap our joy throughout the course of a week. God, we we desperately need you. I feel that myself this morning, that I need you. I need this word, so speak it into my heart this morning as you speak it into all of our hearts today. In your name, amen. Well, as human beings, it's no secret that being satisfied is on the very top of our wish list, especially in the culture we live in here in the U.S., right? It says that we are to 
uh, in the Constitution, pursuit of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. However, this definition of satisfaction varies dramatically. Uh, you could even say each of us has our own definition of what satisfies us. For some, like our friend Matt, it's a mug of the perfectly brewed pour-over to start the day. For others, it's a strong and growing 401k. If you ask your children, it's different each and every day, probably each and every hour. Even in the news this past week, the label satisfied was used in a variety of ways. There was everything from North Korea's Kim expresses satisfaction with Trump's letter to Gillette says it's satisfied with sales after its controversial ad. And even the Tennessee Volunteers not, are not satisfied with their number one ranking. Each of those actual headlines describe being satisfied in very different ways. So what then does it actually mean to be satisfied? And what is the ultimate in satisfaction? Is it the cup of coffee? Is it the national rankings? Maybe it's finding Mr. Right or Mrs. Right. Can we as human beings actually find true and lasting satisfaction? Or are we just on the hamster wheel of life spinning and spinning to no end? Well, the psalmist here in Psalm 16 seems to believe satisfaction is not only attainable, but should in fact be the everyday expression of God's people. The problem is, however, not just that we as humans tend to be far too easily satisfied. Oh, for sure, that's one aspect of it. But what we are satisfied with often turns into our source of security here in life. And so when we have we, what we strongly desire, then and only then do we feel safe. Or so we think. Well, this not only keeps the advertisement industry abuzz, but it also creates this persistent undertone of discontentment and fear in our ears and in our hearts. Well, it's into this constant noise that the psalmist David speaks a, a better word. And we learn this here in Psalm 16, that in God's presence, we find full security and fresh joy. It's in God's presence alone that we can find our full security and our fresh joy. You see, true satisfaction comes not through the things we can acquire as possessions here on earth, but from resting in the security of the one who has acquired us as his treasured possession. Our satisfaction can't come in all that we gain here on earth, but in only resting in the security of the one who has acquired us as his true possession. This is the confidence David has and proclaims here in Psalm 16. For as Sam Storms notes, in spite of numerous setbacks, numerous disappointments, recurring depression and political defeats, he was a profoundly satisfied man. Satisfied, that is, in God. You see, David was unashamed of his longing for the Lord and unafraid to declare his utter dependence on God and God alone for the satisfaction his soul so passionately desired. He found both his satisfaction and his security not in possessions or circumstances, but in God's presence. And so this morning, as we learn from 
David's experience, I believe God would have us as his people today discover anew the security and satisfaction we have available to us in his presence. To discover, as C.S. Lewis puts it, he who has God and everything else has no more than he who has God only. And so let's begin by looking at the first reality that David has learned, that in his presence, in God's presence, we find security. Ours is not only a society obsessed by possession of things, but along with that fixation comes the strong concern for the security of those possessions. In fact, statistics reveal that the concern for protecting one's property has grown to epidemic proportions. In just the past eight years, the security industry has increased into a $350 billion market, with $282 billion being spent in the private sector alone. The truth is, we will do whatever it takes to be safe. We'll buy the dog. We'll put up the cameras and spotlights. I mean, you name it, we will do it as a people to protect ourselves and to protect our possessions. And yet what all that time, all that effort, all that money we put into securing our possessions won't assure us is that those possessions will satisfy us, will it? This psalm, however, testifies that even at the most unstable, even at the most threatening time in our life, when all the forms and means of security fail, there's only one who is our true refuge. See, David begins this psalm with this plea. He says, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. It's most likely at this time, at the time of the writing of this psalm, that David was hiding from his enemy, Saul. 1 Samuel chapter 18 verse through chapter 23 records those frightful days in David's life. Now, you might remember that in the previous chapters there in 1 Samuel, that not only had God rejected Saul as the king over his people, but David had been anointed by Samuel as God's chosen one to reign. Obviously, that would not have set well with Saul. Then on top of this, this young kid named David goes out and kills the giant Goliath who had been mocking Saul and the army of Israel. And then David leads the Israelites to defeat the entire Philistine army. At first... Saul was pleased by this. But only a few short verses later, we read this in 1 Samuel 18. And the woman, the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry. And this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. Of course he did. <laughs> of course he eyed David. I mean, you want to get a guy all jacked up and angry, then you have women sing praises about another guy, right? Of course he's going to go out and get him. David has, unintentionally, but certainly, ticked off the alpha male at that time, which means he's going to run sooner or later, and for David it's sooner rather than later. For then the very next day, Samuel says, as David is serenading Saul, what happens? Saul throws a spear at him to try to kill him. 
David's quick enough, and Saul misses, which only further furiates uh, Saul, and the chase is on. In the next five or so chapters, David is on, is on the run for his life. And if there's anyone that you don't want to be on the run from, it's the king, because the king has people who are able to find you. But that's the background to these words here. David's on the run, seeking shelter, but where is his ultimate shelter? In God. He knows far too well the potential for suffering and attack. It's right around the corner, but notice that instead of crying out for deliverance, his cry is for one of strength and continued protection. His faith is firmly established in God and God's ways. He's confident in his security. This is, in fact, almost exactly what he's written in an earlier psalm, in Psalm, 9, or psalm 11, where it says, In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, Flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted the arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And he continues on to say, The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's in charge. So I trust in him. Even as an outlaw who has to move from place to place, David knows that God himself is his refuge everywhere. It's possible that the background for that language, refuge, is in the familiar cities of refuge in those days, which were designated places to which a person might flee in time of need. And so David, in essence, is saying here, God is our city of refuge. He is our safety, our haven of rest. Verses 3 and 4 also hint at the calamity David finds himself in. There are those who are, quote-unquote, saints, David says, or literally holy ones, godly ones in whom David delights in being with, those who are faithful to God in his covenant. And yet there are also, verse 4 tells us, those who run urgently after other gods in false worship. It's these people who bring David's sorrow, or literally painful sore spots like bruises from a blow. It's that group that David is on the run from. And yet, look down at verse 8. Despite all that's going on, verse 8 informs us, because David has set the Lord always before him, he's not going to be shaken. Which is the negative way of saying, I will be preserved. I mean, what a resolve this is from a man on the run. A resolve which springs from his faith and confidence in God, not in his current circumstances. You see, what David had learned, even at a young age, was that God was sovereign over all. So again, as Sam Sam Storms notes, he concentrates his attention and the energies of his soul on the majesty and the power of God of the one who alone would sustain him when all else is shaking. And this was not an infrequent or occasional choice, or one to which he reverted only in times of crisis. No, for David, it was an orientation of life to which he was always committed. This is who David was, finding his security, his refuge in God. God was real to David. And he knew that in his presence he would have security. That's why his heart can be glad, and he can rejoice with his whole being. 
because he dwells secure in the refuge of Yahweh. But not only is he secure today, he also shows that he's secure for the future. Look again at verse 10 here. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. David knows that he is secure because Yahweh will not abandon him in death and to the grave, Sheol. The preservation David had cried out for in verse 1 is is now put in confidence in verse 8. David is sure that God will be his refuge, not just in the moment of time when he's hiding away for his life, but forever. Death will not be the end of his relationship with God. Death will not cancel out all that he has known and loved about his God. You see, his faith in the present had given birth to a a confident hope for the future. He can rest secure in God, who is his refuge and strength, and ever-present help in times of trouble. And a God who keeps his promise all the way until the end. See, the truth is, this is true for us today as well. For not only is God the same yesterday, today, and forever... But also because of Jesus Christ, death has lost its sting and the grave has no victory. You see, King David would be given a promise recorded for us in 2 Samuel 7, where the prophet Nathan declared God's word saying, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. You see, David knew that, yes, he would one day die, and his body would lie in the grave, but he also knew that God would not abandon him, for he would set one of his descendants on the throne. That descendant would not be just one of a succession of kings that would go on and on. No, he would be the king of all kings. And his kingdom would have no end. In other words, David knew a king was coming that would defeat death. This holy one would would not see corruption like David, for his kingdom would be eternal. Friends, this is the, the good news. The king has come in the person of Jesus Christ, and death has been defeated. For in Acts 2, if you would turn there with me, please, we see... Peter, on the day of Pentecost, quote Psalm 16. And he speaks these words. Acts 2, verse 22. He says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, Delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Whoa, what power in that verse. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. 
Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, Peter continues, I will say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. But being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up and of that we are all witnesses. See, this was the promise to David fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Jesus the Messiah, writes John Piper, the longed hoped for final king of kings allowed death to swallow him for the sake of mortal sinners. But before death could digest him and turn him to dust, he killed death. He killed death for himself and for all who belonged to him, for all who trusted the promise in the Old Testament spoken by David and all who trust his person his person in our own day. You see, it's in this promise fulfilled in Jesus Christ that we can rest secure. We can rest secure that Jesus is our refuge and our strength. David has learned a reality about God that we are experiencing in the gospel today. That God is our refuge and strength. We are secure in him. But he also learns another reality. He also learns that in his presence we find satisfaction. His language throughout this psalm is one of who has not only found rest and security, but one who has found God to be his joy and his true source of satisfaction. So look again at verse 2. He says, after Calling on God as his refuge, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord, I have no good apart from you. What David is saying here is that the Lord is the only one in whom he relies for his well-being. And in saying this, he makes an important connection for us between between these twin realities he's learned of security and satisfaction in God. You see, David understands that there's an integral relationship between our confidence and our contentment. You could say that these are two sides of the same coin. When you are content, you have confidence. When you are confident, you have found contentment. And this is why confidence and contentment rooted in earthly possessions and pleasures are so elusive. You see, the reality is you can't find security in the things you possess. And the pleasures this world has to offer can't give you lasting contentment. There would be no way Paul could say later on, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be, I am to be content in any and every circumstance. If he was finding his security, if he was finding his satisfaction in earthly things, he could not have said that. But you see, in this moment, as Paul says those words, he had nothing at all. And yet he can say, I've learned to be content. Everything he had, he had had been taken from him. He's sitting on the cold, hard floor of a jail cell, but he's rejoicing. Rejoicing in the Lord. This was his 
secret to facing plenty and hunger, he says. Abundance and need. He said, I can do all things through him who strengthens, who preserves me. So again, both Paul and David have learned and they know that our security and our satisfaction, our confidence and our contentment come from one source, from God and God alone. Again, in verse Verses 5 and 6, David proclaims Yahweh to be his satisfaction, saying, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. The language David is using here is based on God's apportioning of the land to and among the twelve tribes of Israel upon their entrance into Canaan. And it alludes to what the Lord had declared to the Levites as their portion in Numbers chapter 18, which states, You shall have no inheritance in their land, neither shall you have any portion among them, but I am your portion and your inheritance among the people of Israel. So David here, building upon that in Numbers, is joyfully embracing God alone as his chosen portion. God alone as his inheritance. He needs absolutely nothing else. My dad tells the story of a vacation when he and his family uh, took a trip down to central Florida. My dad was just a young child at the time. And while they were there, there was a proposal given to my grandfather to purchase a, a portion of marshy land just southwest of Orlando, Florida. At the time, there was nothing at all in that land. But the developer had great hopes for what was to come. Even hopes of a possible theme park of sorts someday. You could probably all guess what that theme park now is. Roughly 10 years later, after my grandfather turned down the purchase of that property, we now have the Walt Disney World Resort and theme parks. That would have been a nice inheritance down there. Wow. Man, I could have used that. But David here says, I don't care about land. You, oh God, supremely beautiful, far surpassing all else, you are my inheritance. You, oh God, are the only land I need or want. This is the declaration of a profoundly satisfied and confident man. Theologian Gerald Wilson makes this observation on what David is saying here. Rather than focus on physical land, the psalmist attests to that Yahweh is his portion and his cup. Such a declaration of faith is only possible for those who have learned by experience that the blessings of the presence of Yahweh are distinct from residence in the ancestral land, and that the path of life can be walked even in a strange in an alien land. In other words, what David has learned is that God's presence matters far more than any portion of land. He doesn't need acreage in Palestine to be satisfied. He has God. In fact, David will end the psalm by exclaiming once again this truth. You make known to me the path of life in your presence There is fullness of joy at your right hand. Our pleasures forevermore. Besides being confident 
of divine strength and protection, David here is revealing that he is also certain of God's continued guidance on the right path. In fact, combined with verse 7, this first phrase, the path of life, make known to me the path of life in verse 11, once again exhibits just how central God's word is in finding satisfaction and joy in God. Not only in David's life, but in every believer's life. See, David is employing a master metaphor here for the word of God, and in doing so, sheds light on how the word provides a a path, a way forward by which one walks to life in all its fullness. It's the word of God that leads us on the path to satisfaction in God's presence. For remember what we saw back the very first week in Psalm 1. This word that we hold in our hands this morning is how we get to know God more. I mean, would you read this book if it weren't about him? If he wasn't found in these pages, would you follow its commands and stake your entire life on its message? David once again shows us here that the words on the pages we hold in front of us are not our aim, but the God who spoke these words. It's in his presence that we find fresh joy. So the joy, literally joys and pleasures, are presented as wholly satisfying. Derek Kidner describes this as the force of the word fullness, which comes from the same root as satisfied in Psalm 17. These joys are endlessly varied, for they're found in both who he is, who God is, and what he gives. Joy in his presence and of his right hand. What we find here is that the refugee of verse 1 has found himself now an heir, and his inheritance is beyond all imagination and all exploring. So the, the psalmist ends on a climax here in verse 11. David has reminded himself that not only is God his full security, but he's also his ultimate satisfaction. Despite his circumstances, he can rest fully in God and continually find fresh joy in him. So, as the psalmist closes, I think we must ask ourselves at the end of this psalm this question. Do I, like the psalmist, find my full security and ultimate satisfaction in God alone? Can these words be my words? Or are my ears so tuned in to the constant noise of our culture that I live in a perpetual state of searching for and the latest, new, latest and newest forms of security and satisfaction? Am I finding satisfaction and security in God or am I on this quest to find it in things here on earth? In his book, God is the Gospel, John Piper asks a heart-penetrating question that I think aptly applies to our passage this morning. He states this, The critical question for our generation and for every generation is this, If you could have heaven with no sickness, with all the friends you ever had here on earth, all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities, you ever enjoyed, and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures 
you ever tasted, and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? Hmm. I think the psalmist is asking us the same question. It's leading us to the same question. Could we be satisfied with heaven if God, Christ, were not there? Are we satisfied here on earth without the presence of God? Is God our security, our satisfaction? Is he our refuge and our fullness of joy? Well, as we conclude this series, I want to encourage us as a church to seek God's presence in three specific ways. Of course, as we've studied for the last couple weeks, the word of God and its central role in seeking God's presence and finding joy, first of all, the word. Constantly avail yourself to God's voice through his word. Randy Elkhorn says, Happiness among believers is proportionate to the time invested in the humble study of God's Word. I mean, we have thousands of different resources at our fingertips to aid us in our intake of God's Word. Use them all if you have to. Seek fresh joy in God through His Word, but also by the Spirit's work. As you search the Word, tune your ear to hearing God speak through the agent of His Spirit. Let the Spirit do His work of shining a bright light on the glory of God in the face of Jesus as you read his word. And also as you use and receive the gifts of grace the Spirit uses to build his church. More on that next week. So the word and the Spirit, but also the community of faith. Find delight like David did in the saints. Those who are on this journey toward Christ's likeness with you who stand hand in hand with you in the fight for seeking fresh joy in Jesus each and every day. Seek God's presence in his word, through the spirit, and through his church. In God's presence, we find full security and fresh joy. The original version of a hymn, Forth in Thy Name, based on this psalm written by Charles Wesley talks about a deep commitment to finding our security and satisfaction in God's presence. It goes like this, Forth in thy name, O Lord, I go, my daily labor to pursue. Thee, only thee, resolve to know in all I think or speak or do. The task thy wisdom hath assigned, O let me cheerfully fulfill. In all my works thy presence find and prove thy good and perfect will. Preserve me from my calling snare and hide my simple heart above, above the thorns of choking care, the gilded baits of worldly love. For thee delightfully employ whate'er thy bounteous grace hath given and run my course with even joy and closely walk with thee to heaven. Is God your rest? Is God alone your joy? In his presence, we find full security and fresh joy. 
Father, this morning, I pray that we might be a people that could say in confidence that you alone are our security and rest. You are our confidence. You're also our joy. You're our contentment. You are our satisfaction. We don't need anything else here on earth. And so, if circumstances strip away the goods that we have, if hardship comes, we know where to run. We know to run to our refuge, our strength. God, I pray that we don't have to run far because we're living close to you, walking hand in hand, learning from you through your voice and your word, letting your spirit speak into our hearts, convicting us of where we may be going off path and drawing us back to you and your goodness and your presence. May we together do this. May we delight in the presence of one another because in your church you make your presence known. You do that through the gifts. You do that through a word spoken of encouragement, of correction. So God, would you stir us as a people to be close to you through the word, spirit, your people. And as we do so, we know that we can say with a psalmist that you are making known to us the path of life. That we have fullness of joy in your presence and pleasures forevermore.